Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Lena Wang, Marcus Rotterdam, and I, Brendan Voles, are pleased to talk to you today about an important development for our firm and something that we're very grateful for, an opportunity to continue the publication of important books in our practice of construction law field. One of them is Annotated Construction Act. The other is Conduct of Lean Trust and Adjudication Proceedings. Both of these are books that have been around for, in the case of what I'm going to call annotated, more than 20 years now. And in the case of what I'm going to call conduct, for almost 20 years. Both of them were established, founded, and really built from scratch, I would say, by our named partner, Duncan Glayholt. And Duncan is at the stage now where he has asked Lena and I to take over these publications, which we're very honored to do so. It's a significant honor, I would say. And so today, we're going to talk to you about the books, what they mean to us, and some new things that are going to be in this year's editions that for the first time we'll have Lena's name on annotated and my name on conduct. We're very happy to have with us today Marcus Rotterdam, who I would say was also instrumental in building these books from the ground up and doing endless hours of research to make them happen really over the years and is continuing to do so for us. So we're very grateful both obviously for that hard work that he's doing, but also for the fact that he's joining us on the, the podcast today to, to discuss these works. I can tell you that when I think back on it, now I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be one of the name partners of this firm. But when I first joined, I was an articling student. Back when I was applying for an articling job in 1998, I, I was one of those law students who wasn't really completely sure what I wanted to do. And at Queen's Law School, there was certainly no course in construction law in those days. Ironically, now there is one at Queen's taught by our partner, Andrea Lee, but certainly then you would have had no exposure to the Construction Lean Act, as it was then known whatsoever, in law school. And so I didn't even know there was a such thing as construction law practice. But I remember when I saw the advertisement for a, an articling position at Glayholt & Associates, as the firm was then known, one of the things that really impressed me and stood out for me was that Duncan Glayholt was the author of Annotated Ontario Construction Lean Act, which... As a law student, at least, I appreciated how significant that was because by way of example, one of the activities I did in law school was legal aid clinic, Queen's Legal Aid, where one of the things we were able to do as students was represent people who had been charged with minor criminal offenses and cut our teeth that way. And so one of the, the books we use regularly as a student and, you know, obviously criminal practitioners would use this too, was the annotated criminal code which was published by a lawyer named Alan Gold, at least in those days. And so for me, I remember thinking, yeah, this guy must be the Alan Gold of construction law, whatever construction law is. And so ironically now, almost 25 years later, construction law has really become my life and career. And it, I think it started with having the opportunity to be very fortunate to article for this firm. And going back that far, the annotated construction lean act was very instrumental to really the firm's identity and what we would become. And so in addition to that, of course, it, it came a few years later, but I remember starting in 2004, Duncan also 
again with Marcus's help, came out with a subsequent publication called Conduct of a Lean Action. With the evolution of the statute over the years, that book has also evolved. It's now Conduct of Lean Trust and Adjudication Proceedings. And so I'm very honored to take up the work on that one, recognizing the extreme amount of hard work that Duncan has put in over the years, and, and Marcus too, for that matter. At this point, maybe having talked a bit about your role, Marcus, I'll, I'll pass it over to you just to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about these books and what they've meant to you over the years. Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for annotated because that is the very first paid legal work that I actually did in my career. I, at the time, was finishing a master's degree at Osgoode Hall Law School and found out, like many people with a master's degree, that wasn't really the most straightforward career choice, and it's not all that clear what one does with such a degree. So I had asked a couple of friends who were lawyers to let me know if they ever came across any kind of legal work that I could be doing. So one day, a very good friend of mine, uh, Joost Hirsch, who was an associate at the firm, gave me a call and told me that the firm was, in fact, looking for somebody to organize their files. Now, that wasn't exactly the legal work I had in mind, but I thought and he said, you know, like it's it's at least you get your foot into a law firm in, in Toronto. So who knows what happens? So I spent two weeks at the firm in the firm's basement on the one and a half floor in some kind of weird caged environment where I was surrounded by a couple of hundred boxes. And I sat there with a laptop and created a database of what was in those files so that lawyers could actually determine what could be shredded, what needed to be kept, and that people could actually find what was in that basement. So I did that for two days, uh, not two days, I'm sorry, I wish, but I did that for two weeks. And I distinctly remember that at the end of those two weeks, one of the assistants one day at five o'clock came down and brought me a bottle of beer. And I thought this is clearly the best firm in the history of law firms. And it's 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 all amazing. But at the end of the two weeks, I came up and went to see Joanne Rattray, our bookkeeper, to collect my hard-earned money. And as I was walking down the hallway to see Joanne and to get my check, I came across Duncan. And Duncan asked who, who on earth I was because he'd never seen me and I was just walking down his law firm. And Joost introduced me to him and mentioned that I had a law degree from Germany and now a master's from Osgood. And in some weird twist that could only really happen with, with Duncan Glayhold is uh, he had just come back from a conference in which somebody was talking about civil law and Duncan started thinking about the use of civil law aspects to the inquisitorial powers of masters on a lean action. And again, that's only something that Duncan could ever come up with. But when he heard that I had a German law degree, he asked me if I was interested in writing a paper with him on that very thing. And he needed me to write the German civil procedure aspects of that paper. So I said, yeah, obviously, I'd be happy to. And he said, good. So we start on that next week. But in the meantime, here are three cases that I want you to summarize for a book I'm about to write or about to publish. They just came out and they were cases from the Supreme Court of Canada on knowing receipt and knowing assistance, so liability of strangers to the trust. Now, I had never in my life read any Canadian decisions before that day, but I summarized those cases for him and gave him the printout, and he read them and said, good, if you want a job, you can have a job. So that was my job interview at Glayhold. Yeah, that was in 97, and I'm still here. So that is why I've always had a soft spot for annotated and will always have a soft spot for that book, because as I said, that is the first non-manual labor legal work that ever got me paid. That's my introduction to that book. 
few years later, Duncan started with conduct of a lean action from scratch, and I was involved in doing the primary research for that as well. And the rest is history, as they say. As they say, yes. And now both Brendan and I have dated ourselves by mentioning pre-2000 date. So there we go. So my story does not involve any manual labor. I came to the firm in the fall or winter of 2014, I think. And I came to the firm not knowing anything basically about construction law or really the construction industry. So needless to say, these two books that we're talking about today, they were a lifeline for me in my first few years at the firm. And I used them pretty much every day. And I quickly realized that these two books were also used by members of the bar pretty often. One day when I was in court on a commercialist matter, it was like a very quick matter. It was something in chambers. And I was there for one of the lien claimants. It was a priority dispute. And because it was supposed to be a quick matter, it wasn't a motion or a hearing or anything on the merits, I didn't have my books with me. I was ill-prepared. And as we were talking about the sections of the act that touch on these priority disputes, one of the lawyers said, oh, well, what does annotated say? Let's look at the cases behind this section. And all the lawyers turned to look at me. And I thought, oh, everyone expected me to have the books because I work at Glayholt. Back then, Glayholt, now Glayholt Bowls. I didn't have my books at that moment. But that was the last time that I went to court, went anywhere without either of these two books. I think I came back to the office that day and put them in my suitcase and they, you know, they stay there and every year I replace them. So in all seriousness, though, I, I echo what Brendan has said in that I'm I'm so grateful for the opportunity and I'm honored to be a part of the firm and to be a part of the legacy of these books for Annotated, along with co-author David Kishan. I hope that I can contribute to keeping the Annotated Acts a practical and useful book for everybody that uses it. Yeah, no, that's that's great, Lena. And I have to confess, I was kind of laughing. I was, I was glad I had my mic on mute while both you and Marcus were speaking because I was literally just in hysterics while Marcus was reminiscing about the late 90s at Glayholt. I mean, he really just sort of nailed what it was like to be at the firm in those days. And it was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, too. And uh, a lot of manual labor, especially down in that basement storage area. But I was also laughing at your comment, too, about being in court and people looking at you because that's definitely one of the real concrete legacies of these books, I think. And I've often joked over the years that there have been several times where I've been told by a judge in court or even just opposing counsel over the phone when we've been talking about a case that, you know, the position that you're advocating, Mr. Bowles, is precisely the opposite of what Mr. Glayholt says on page 78 of Conduct. They not literally that page, but you get the idea. One of the things that Marcus has cautioned me, therefore, is that, yeah, now I'm going to be potentially contradicting myself. So all I would say to that, though, of course, and to everyone listening to this podcast is remember, case law is important. Precedents are important, but every case depends on its own unique facts. And that's why the law is is so interesting. It's when we get into these complicated and in some ways difficult fact situations that the law really comes to life. And so I think one of the things I would just, before we get into talking about what's new with conduct this year that I would say, and I'm sure Lena would say the same, is that we really do appreciate the feedback we get from readers of these books. I know certainly Duncan has remarked on that a lot over the years. So we would encourage you when you get an interesting case in your practice, an interesting question, or frankly, if you encounter a problem on a real file and the book just doesn't really address it, 
don't hesitate to reach out to us because that's how these books come to life, as I say, and that's how they evolve is when we we deal with these real world problems. So we we definitely look forward to your feedback in that regard. I guess at this point, then we wanted to spend the rest of the time on the podcast talking a little bit about both books and what's new with them. And I think for conduct, I would say one of the things that this year's edition is really going to highlight are some of the changes of technology that have come about almost overnight, really, starting in March of 2020 uh, with the onset of the pandemic. But to some extent, these were trends that had started actually before that. And I want to talk about a particular case that actually was slightly before the pandemic that was important to that. But in terms of, you know, how do you conduct one of these Construction Act proceedings? One of the things we've really tried to do with this year's edition is take some of the wisdom and knowledge of the substance of what you're trying to accomplish in conducting one of these proceedings, which I think really does remain consistent throughout the years. But how do you translate that into good advocacy practices in an age where now things are largely electronic? So, for example, in the older editions, one of the concerns we might have had is, are you using the correct paper stock for a Scott schedule? And how do you tab and bind things for the master? Well, now, of course, this year's edition would be more, are your Excel tables properly formatted for your Scott schedule? Is your case properly briefed and uploaded to case lines, for example? Those are definitely topics that the new books are going to touch on. And I mentioned earlier there was a case, and I'm fortunate to have one of the partners who was one of lead counsel on that case on this podcast. So I'm going to actually take advantage of that opportunity and ask her to talk a little bit about it. But one of the cases that does come up quite a bit, I think, in both books is a case called Schindler Elevator versus Walsh Bonfield Joint Venture that arose from a Women's College Hospital project in Toronto and involved the assertion of delay claims in a lien action. And the, the action took place before Master Robinson, of course, now Associate Justice Robinson, in very early 2020, Lena can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe just before the pandemic happened. So it would have been a trial that was conducted at the courthouse, but it was conducted primarily electronically, which I think is one of the important aspects of the case from a conduct standpoint that we've talked about in the book. And so, Lena, maybe I'd ask you, could you just tell us a little bit about how that trial might have been different from a more traditional paper construction lead trial? Yeah, of course. The trial took place over different days in January and February of 2020, so just before everything shut down in March 2020. And I think first I'll mention it was hybrid trial in the sense that evidence in chief went in by affidavits, which is key in, I think, setting it up for it to be an electronic trial because you're not getting your witnesses giving viva voce evidence on the stand for many, many days. And what we did is we basically filed everything electronically. So this is pre-case lines. Everything was tabbed and bookmarked and filed on a USB key with Master Robinson, now Associate Justice Robinson. He had a key. We, representing Schindler, had a key. Counsel for Schindler and then counsel for the other side, Walsh Ponfield, had a key, a USB key where everything, all the documents were on there. So that includes all of our exhibits, witness statements, and most importantly, a joint book of documents, which is hyperlinked to the exhibits in the witness statements, and then also separately to the exhibits themselves. 
So what that meant is the court was set up with monitors for Associate Justice Robinson, for counsel at both tables, and then also for the witness. And the monitors were hooked up so that they were mirrored. So whoever had the controlling laptop could display a document and everyone saw the same thing. And that's how documents were put to the witnesses during cross-examination. We filed in hard copy one copy of very specific documents that were ordered by Associate Justice Robinson. And I had to look through my records in preparing for this podcast because I'd forgotten what they were. But they were basically the original sworn affidavits, one paper copy of the joint book of documents, which was still a lot of paper. I think it was about 16 volumes and then proof of service for any other trial materials that you need to show as you would in any other trial. So even though that joint book of documents was many volumes, it still greatly reduced the amount of paper we had. I think in the end, the court had maybe two or three boxes versus 20 or 30 boxes. From my perspective anyway, it works very well. I think what I took out of this, not only is that technology is here to stay, and that was quickly proven to be true once the pandemic hits, but also to do an electronic trial, you need to be very prepared in advance You need to do all of the prep work organizing documents in advance. So not just you need to identify your documents, but when you are cross-examining a witness, you can write down exactly which page of that document you want to take the witness to, and you can find it a lot faster just by, you know, hitting the, the page number on the PDF document, as opposed to flipping the page and then having your witness flip through the page on the stand. So I think it worked well because you had to be prepared, but it worked really well in the end. And I think that you need to be well prepared in advance to organize your documents really translates to the use of case lines, which having had a little bit of experience with, I know that as an example, everything needs to be uploaded on case lines five days before a hearing or a motion before the event. And so that means not only do you as a lawyer need to be well prepared, your clerk, your assistants, everybody in your office needs to be well prepared in advance of that. But as I understand the case line is here to stay even once we sort of return to courthouses to have hearings and motions. I'll be going with my laptop, navigating to case line and telling the judge it's this page reference that I want to take him to. And so I think having had that experience with the electronic trial, I can say that case line hopefully will be something that the construction bar can make good use of as well when we're doing these lean trials. Thank you, Lena, for that very helpful summary. I appreciate it. And, you know, uh, it's always nice to have someone who had the direct experience to talk about it. And it it, it shows that it, it can work, I think. And it's just so interesting, the timing of it, you know, because, you know, after that trial concluded, the pandemic hit very shortly thereafter. We've been in an environment for the last two years where most court appearances have been exclusively by way of Zoom. But I think we'll get to a point likely where more stuff is able to be conducted in person. But I think I agree with you what you're going to see in those hearings, even where you do physically appear before a judge or an associate judge, for example, that you'll still be using case lines in order to present and refer the court to the evidence in the case, the arguments in the brief and the case law, of course. And so obviously those are themes that we touch on in conduct and we discussed the Schindler case in particular. But I think going forward, I've reflected on this a bit. I think it's going to require those of us who perhaps are not quite as technologically proficient as others, I think, to sharpen our game a bit. Part of being a good advocate, I think, is being able to use case lines effectively. By the same token, though, 
And reflecting on that, I take some comfort from it in this sense, is that over the years in the paper system, I often found it was a bit of a challenge to know, does the judge in fact have your materials? And if they have your materials, do they have all the materials? Did they get tabbed properly? Do they have the right references in front of them? And in the old days, quote unquote, one of the things that would perhaps be first discussed with the court, and a judge may even start a hearing off by saying, counsel, I've read everything. Or in some cases, particularly in a construction case where you've got numerous records filed with the court, we would spend some time going through, making sure the court had copies of everything and identifying it for the record. With case lines, you won't need to do any of that. You'll be able to go into the hearing resting assured that the court has exactly what's on case lines, just as you do, and just as opposing counsel does. And so if you think about it, we're all going to be starting hearings from an equal footing in terms of ensuring that the material has been properly filed with the court and is available for the judge or associate judge to review. And everyone starts from that same base platform. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's going to enhance advocacy going forward. The one thing I would just say to our listeners is that when you are reading conduct, if you notice somewhere in there that I've got a reference to 11 by 17 paper to file with the master, let me know because we do want to make sure that we update our references to case lines and to associate justices, for example. Although I think Marcus did manage to catch 99.99% of our references to master and change them to associate judge because this is the year where that change was made. So maybe at that point, then I'll segue to another topic that we're covering in conduct. Then I'm wondering, Marcus, if you could just help us with this one. It has to do with some new case law with respect to the requirement to seek leave under the act. Yeah, that is something that I think we're making a point of stressing in the next edition. And it's it's kind of odd that we still need to stress it because I remember when we first worked on conduct, Duncan and I actually had a few meetings with the masters, as they then were. And we sat in the master's library in the, in the courthouse with Master Sandler originally and then later with Master Albert. And one of their pet peeves that they asked us to specifically address was the fact that people just bring any kind of motion in the court that is not otherwise contemplated in the act without ever bothering to seek leave. Now, under the old act, section 67 sub 2 provided that you need leave to bring any kind of interlocutory steps that aren't contemplated in the act. And that is now found in section 13 of the regulation of, of regulation 302.18. So it's very clear in the act that if you bring anything that's not provided for in the act that's interlocutory, you do need leave from the court. For whatever reason, this last year, there were a number of cases that dealt with that. So we thought we make a point of stressing that in both conduct and obviously summarizing the cases in the annotated as well. And those are issues like, for example, a motion for a request to admit. So there was a case recently, for example, called Volta Electric versus Numbered Company that concerned a request to admit. A party had served a request to admit without seeking leave of the court, made a point once again of stressing that leave for that would have been necessary because a request to admit is not provided for in the act. It is interlocutory and therefore don't just bring it, seek leave. Now, in that particular case, leave was granted and it was granted non-protunct, so it wasn't fatal to the party who forgot to seek leave originally, but you're not going to endear yourself to the associate judge if you continue doing this without seeking leave beforehand. 
Other instances included things like a demand for particulars. Again, there's nothing about a demand for particulars in the Act. Now, courts don't seem to be too troubled by that, and they grant them by analogy to the rules. But again, because they're not provided for in the Act, you will need to seek leave before serving a demand for particulars. So those are just things that associate judges have been pointing out for decades now, but we saw a need to maybe stress that a little more in both books. Now, another thing that we address in the new edition, Brendan, of Conduct is an issue that arose in a recent file we have, and that is the relationship of pleadings in a lien action to Scott schedules. And that's something, Brendan, that you might want to discuss. As I said, it arose in a recent case where a statement of claim or a counterclaim, I don't recall which one it was, sought damages in a certain amount. And then the question arose in light of the fact that the Scott schedule had or a higher amount of damages than was sought in the pleading. Was it necessary to amend the pleading to seek the higher amount of damages? So maybe that's something you could quickly discuss, Brendan. Exactly. And it's something I've encountered in a couple of cases in my practice where there was an argument over whether or not the pleadings needed to be amended, even at trial, even after trial. And at the same time, there had been Scott schedules used in the action. So Scott schedules are obviously kind of a bread and butter thing in construction lien actions. We all who practice in this area, I think, have a pretty basic working knowledge of them. And indeed, I think there's an impression out there, even among people who don't regularly practice in this area, that there's something that are used in construction cases. I'll never forget one of the first trials I did as a young lawyer. It was a construction lien trial in Milton. I'd been practicing for about two or three years, and the trial judge was quite upset of both of us, both me and my opponent at the beginning of the case, because there was no Scott schedule filed, and he knew it was a lien action and where was the Scott schedule. And so I explained to the judge that this was a very narrow case with only one issue. There was an epoxy floor, and the allegation was that the uh, epoxy was installed defectively. So if we had done a Scott schedule, it would have been just literally like a one cell Scott schedule. So we hadn't done one. But but nevertheless, this judge, you know, he did the occasional construction case. And his view was if you're doing a lien trial, you needed a Scott schedule. So we all know about them to a degree. But sometimes it's helpful with these things to return to first principles, I think. What's it for? What's it about? What is it not? Scott schedule is not evidence. It is not testimony that's admissible and evidence from a party. It's a document that is created by a lawyer. And sometimes I should say by clerk, student, or frankly, even a client will often have input into these. But at the end, it's filed by the lawyer in order to give particulars of matters that are in dispute in the lien action to simplify it, to organize the material so it's more effective for the judge or associate judge conducting the trial to understand the evidence that's being led in respect of each of these items. And that's why I was kind of joking earlier about my epoxy floor trial from years ago was that if you had just a single issue, arguably maybe you don't need the roadmap of a Scott schedule to do a simple trial like that. But you can quickly imagine in a construction lien matter where you've got disputed claims for extra money, disputed deficiencies, multiple deficiencies being alleged by an owner, that a table setting out each item on an item-by-item basis would be very useful for the conduct of the trial. And it's not evidence. It's not to give the full story on each of these, but just basic particulars so that the court can understand the evidence as it's being presented 
and an organizational tool so we can see what the issues are, the key documents that relate to them, the party's basic positions on them, and even and especially the party's basic dollar values that they would ascribe to each item. I would only pause to remark there that unfortunately in real life in my career, inevitably the party on the other side always puts a zero in their side of the Scott schedule as to the dollar value associated with a particular item. <laughs> but I think that is a bit of a missed opportunity because in other words, that would indicate that there's an issue with the damages too. In reality, if there's no issue as to the quantum of damages, just liability, I think there should be at least some indication so the court can understand the evidence better. But putting that aside, what's the significance of that then? Especially because you're under the timelines of the Construction Act, you've had to issue a statement of claim pretty quickly. And the case has evolved. The complexity of the various disputed items and issue has emerged through exchange of documents, probably examinations for discovery, even expert reports as the case has evolved. You come to trial, perhaps the original cookie cutter statement of claim and statement of defense and counterclaim that were exchanged doesn't have the exact dollar value that you would end up with that you wanted to present for a claim or a counterclaim at trial. It perhaps doesn't have all the details and particulars of the individual items that make up of the overall claim by the lien claimant on the one hand and the counterclaim by the defendant on the other hand. So bearing in mind what I said is that it's not evidence. So what is it? It's really particulars of pleadings. And that's one of the things that we stress in the book. It's a species of pleading that is almost unique to construction lien actions, although it can also be used, I would say, for any type of construction case as well. Having said that, does that put you then in a bit of a legally tenuous position if your pleading hasn't been amended and is that issue properly before the court? Well, I would say in a construction lien action, at least, while you must have a request for the court that you're entitled to a declaration that your client is entitled to a lien and also likely an action for breach of contract combined into the same action. The individual items of the Scott schedule are really just elements of the overall claim for lien or overall claim for breach of contract that's being asserted. So you wouldn't have an issue, for example, under the Limitations Act, in my view, that you failed to assert a claim in a timely fashion remembering that sometimes even in a lien action, it takes more than two years for these things to actually get to trial. But provided that you have a fully detailed Scott schedule that sets all that out, in my view, why on earth would you need to amend the pleadings simply to change a dollar value or even frankly to set out more particulars of how the claim is calculated if you've got all of that in your Scott schedule? That's my view, at least. And in fact, actually with a counterclaim, I would say it's even stronger because if a counterclaim under the act there is wide latitude on the part of the defendant to include any claim that they have as against the plaintiff in that counterclaim. And provided that you don't have a limitations issue, I guess, in theory, you can imagine a case that has proceeded so slowly that you've maybe only set out particular elements of a counterclaim that were not originally pleaded more than two years later. But if you've provided a fully detailed Scott schedule within that two-year period, whether it captures new claims or not, I would say that's adequate for the matter to be tried. It's Again, it's not evidence. It's really a species of pleading, in my view, providing further particulars, and the court would be able to adjudicate upon that. I think I, I'm just going to jump in, Brendan. I think I agree. And I think it really goes back to thinking about an action under the act on a holistic level. So it's supposed to be summary in nature, going back to what Marcus talked about in terms of needing to seek leave for steps that are not provided for, 
if you needed to seek leave to amend your counterclaim, for example, to change an amount, are you proceeding with the action in a summary way? Is that going to sort of slow things down? Versus can you be using your Scott schedule in this way that you've described? And really there's no prejudice to the other party. I think that's a very creative way and a very good way to think about the tools we have that's pretty unique to construction actions. And on that note, I think if we want to move on to talking about just a couple of the cases that we have highlighted for annotated, this year there's been a few areas of law that have seen some development. And Marcus is going to start us off with talking about whether or not you can join breach of trust actions with lien actions under the new act. Yeah, on on that issue of joining lien and trust claims, there's been a lot of activity recently. It all started with a decision by Associate Justice Weeb called Numbered Company and Top Uric. In that case, the master held that based on recent developments, according to him, it was once again impossible to join trust claims with lien claims. And by way of a very quick background, there used to be a prohibition in the old Construction Lien Act that expressly said that a trust claim can be brought in any court of competent jurisdiction, but shall not be joined with a lien claim. That was not carried over into the new Construction Act based on recommendations by the expert review of the Construction Lien Act. However, There was also a provision in the old Construction Lien Act that says that you could join with a lien claim, a breach of contract claim. That initially was also not carried forward into the new act, but was then in 2019 carried forward into the regulations. Now, according to Associate Judge Weeb, what that meant is that the legislature had a change of mind and that because the regs now say that you can join a breach of contract claim with a lien claim, that means that you can only join a breach of contract claim with a lien claim and that that excludes breach of trust claim. Now, whether or not that's correct is, at least to Brendan and myself, questionable. We have written a short article on that in our newsletter where we say that that decision, to our mind at least, goes against the legislative intent and also goes against at least one principle of legislative interpretation that says that you have to interpret an act so that all sections make sense and none of them is superfluous. And if that reading were correct, then the old prohibition of joining trust claims with lien claims would have been superfluous if the other section already excluded such claims. So in our view, that that decision is questionable, but it is what it is. There are now two decisions by Associate Justice Weep that say just that. And there's a very recent or relatively recent case, a subsequent case by a Superior Court justice that makes things a little less clear even because according to that judge the section that allows joinder of breach of contract claims with lien claims is not something that the legislature ought to have done by way of regulation so according to that justice section 3 sub 2 which is the new section in the regulation is invalid but because there had been no party seeking a declaration of invalidity. The judge didn't go there or go on to actually declare the provision invalid. But in any event, that is an area that is very much in flux right now. So we'll have to wait for some kind of higher court, presumably the divisional court, to weigh in on that and tell us if you can or cannot join such claims in the future. 
So that's the first area that is of some interest in the new edition. Another one is a recent divisional court decision on estoppel and to what extent you could use estoppel to get around the strict timelines of the Lean Act. Maybe you want to talk about that, Lena? Thanks, Marcus. So the estoppel decision that Marcus is referring to from the divisional court is from 2021, and it's the J.D. Strong Construction versus Egan Holdings decision. I'll just give the reference. It's 2021 ONSE 6425. And it's a decision of Justice Corbett sitting on a panel with Justices Penny and Favreau. It's an appeal from an order of a Superior Court judge discharging a portion of a claim for lien because it was not perfected within the timelines of the old Construction Lien Act. The lien claimant had tried to rely on an argument that promissory estoppel arose to extend the timeline to perfect the lien. That argument was rejected by the Superior Court judge based on the evidence before him. And on appeal, the Divisional Court upheld that finding because the judge was entitled to deference on that finding as he found that the evidence didn't give rise to promissory estoppel. So the appeal itself was not disposed on whether or not promissory estoppel in general can toll the running of lien timelines. But Justice Corbett wrote, essentially in Orbiter, that this decision does not signal that promissory estoppel can arise to defeat timelines in the Construction Lien Act. And he noted that if promissory estoppel could be used to extend timelines, then that could have a cascading effect on the construction ladder, and it would defeat the strict timelines of the Construction Lien Act and now carry forward into the Construction Act. And that's one of the sort of key features of the Act is these strict timelines. So my takeaway from reading it is, you know, yes, his comments, Justice Corbett's comments were in orbiter, but really promissory estoppel can't be used to extend lean timelines. And that's certainly the way I would give advice. And I would not want to be on the side of arguing that it can with this divisional court decision in hand. And I think the next issue that we wanted to flag does relate to a lean action again. And Brendan's going to talk about what happens if the lean claimant is a corporation, but it's not current in its corporate status. So for example, if it's dissolved, what does that do to your lien? Yeah, thank you, Lena. And there was an interesting case that came out last year that I think goes to one of the things that we discuss in conduct, which is what is the necessary proper due diligence that you have to do as counsel before you preserve a claim for lien on behalf of your client? And if you fail to do that due diligence, how you could potentially leave the client in the lurch. And it's also somewhat related, I think, to one of the themes that came up in the case that Lena was just discussing, which was to what extent does equity play any role in dealing with these Construction Act deadlines? And I would tend to say the answer is really pretty much none or very little. But I'll talk about this case briefly just to give you some context to why I have that view. So the case itself, it's called Numbered Company Operating as Plug-and-Play Solutions versus Deltro Electric LTD. The site is 2021 ONSC 8182. It's a decision of Justice Doyle, which, as Lena mentioned, involved a situation where a company had been dissolved by the ministry for, I think in this case, it was failure to have paid taxes, which is one of the reasons why corporations can be canceled or dissolved. And so 
To get back to what I said earlier, one of the things we stress is that there are certain searches you should undertake as a lawyer before you register a lien. One is obviously a title search. I would say that's kind of a no-brainer, at least where the lien attaches to the premises. That's a discussion for another day where they don't. But you do the title search, but you also do corporate searches and you also do bankruptcy searches, in our view, of the parties involved. And this case illustrates why. Because had that search been done, before the lien was preserved, the lawyer would have discovered that his client had already been canceled. The corporation no longer had any legal existence. Now, it was capable of revival, but nobody knew that it had been canceled, least of all the individual who was in control of the company and who had various medical issues, which were relied on in terms of an argument for equity before the court, but were ultimately rejected. And so it had happened that the corporation had been canceled. It no longer had legal existence. Nobody knew that. The lien was preserved. The lien was perfected. The non-existence of the corporation was discovered. It was then subsequently revived as permitted under the Ontario Business Corporations Act. But also key under that statute is the law of revival essentially is it puts the corporation back into standing as though the cancellation had never occurred, except for any rights that a third party has acquired during the period where the corporation was dissolved. In other words, to put it directly in the context of this case, where the owner had acquired the right that the lien was expired and no longer attached to its property, it could not be prejudiced by simply reviving the corporation after the time periods for preservation and perfection of the lien under the Construction Act had already expired. And so the court in that case discharged the lien. There was an argument that due to the unfortunate personal circumstances of the key individual who controlled the plug-and-play plaintiff, that some equitable relief should be considered by the court. That was rejected, interestingly, on the basis that the judge found that in the circumstances, the personal circumstances were not sufficient to have explained why the corporation was allowed to be canceled and not revived in time to have preserved the lien. So the door was perhaps left a little bit open. My own personal view, for what it's worth, is these equitable arguments should have little if no role, actually, in most of these Construction Act problems. Because remember, it's not just a in-persona remedy, it's an in-rem remedy as against the world. It affects the rights of third parties. It allows a lien claimant to claim priority over mortgages, for example. It potentially impacts a buyer of a property. There's all sorts of external implications and effects that the lien remedy has, which if we introduced into the mix, the concept that the otherwise certainty of the expiry of the lien could be overridden by compelling equitable circumstances, In my view, a real fundamental pillar of the system would be removed, and essentially the system would collapse. So that may be an overly melodramatic point to have concluded this podcast with, but that being said, I do think the harsh timelines and strictures under the Construction Act exist for a reason, and I think ultimately the plug-and-play case is just one demonstration of that. So to get back to it then, make sure you do proper corporate searches before registering a lead, because it may be that you can get the corporation revived in time to preserve it and avoid the problem altogether, which is why we, in our view, say that's part of your due diligence as a lawyer in order to properly represent your client in these retainers. So I think then I'll sort of end on that thought. Just wanted to reiterate, of course, though, 
my gratitude to Duncan for trusting me with this important work. I'll do my best. I couldn't have a better co-pilot along the way if I asked for it. Marcus, even though I'm sure Marcus continues to take delight in finding cases that contradict arguments that I want to make on behalf of particular real-world clients. But after all, that's just a challenge. Life and the law would be boring if it was easy. So I'm not looking for things that are easy. And I welcome the challenge of being able to continue on with this publication. And again, would just ask that if you see something in the book that you think is wrong or doesn't make sense, or if you come across an interesting case that we should be discussing, please bring it to our attention because we welcome that feedback and are very grateful for it. Uh, so on that note, I will pass it over to perhaps Marcus, I guess, if you just had any concluding thoughts. I'd just like to say I've enjoyed working on these two books with Duncan for the last 25 years it's been now, and I'm definitely not going to work with the two of you for the next 25 years, but I do look forward to working on those books with the two of you for the foreseeable future, and I'm glad to have you both aboard. I couldn't have said it any better, I think, than Brendan said. Just very grateful to be involved in these efforts, and I think we all know that we couldn't have done this without you, Marcus. And of course, we invite, like Brendan said, your comments and feedback so that we can improve and continue Duncan's legacy with these books and make them really useful for everybody who uses it as the world sort of changes in terms of technology and new cases being added to the body of law. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.